Good morning, everyone. I want to thank you for uh, giving me this opportunity to share this brave space with all of you this Sunday morning. I've been uh, down on the riverfront recently, and I'm wondering if any of you have been along the riverfront as well. I, I often enjoy walking along the Peoria riverfront, um, even though I have this sinus issue and I don't really smell well. Um, I often do catch a whiff of the Illinois River, and it's not all that great. <laughs> so I, I say this because uh, we have, if you've been down there, uh, you may know of this thing that's called the CSO, the Combined Sewer Overflow. Uh, this is that our city is old, and it was built where our sewer system and our rain drainage are built into the same system. So whenever we get a heavy downfall of rain like we have over this past week, our raw sewage ends up in the Illinois River. If you've been down to the, uh, the science rally that happened just two weekends ago, I believe, you may have heard Dr. Rita Ali. Uh, she spoke on the CSO and what we can do as citizens of Peoria to stop the sewage from entering our system. Uh, into our river. She recommended that when there's heavy rainfall that we not use our, maybe we put off doing the dishes or that the laundry, take a shorter shower. Those are ways that we personally can keep our river clean. This reminds me of what has been happening recently. The water in which we swim in, a different body of water. Uh, Jim Key, who is the moderator of the Unitarian Universalist Association, recently wrote a letter on behalf of the board uh, where he spoke of this water, the water in which we swim in. And I just want to share a bit of that letter with you today. The term white supremacy once referred exclusively to individuals and organizations that openly espouse the superiority of white people. In recent years, the term has come to refer to a culture or a social narrative that places the needs, desires, stories, well-being, and the very lives of white people over and above those of people of color. It is in this water we swim in. It is so much a part of our lives and the lives of our association that it, was, that it has just become business as usual. We have chosen to use this term to, and to endorse the teaching called for by many of our religious educators uh, because we are absolutely committed to staying awake to the challenge before us. White supremacy is a continuum. When we refuse to acknowledge our place in that continuum, we risk being lulled back into complacency. Not this time, friends. Forward together, not one step back. So, that sounds like some pretty nasty water <laughs> that we do not want to be a part of. Uh, and just like the Illinois River, when after the CSO happens, you don't want to get into that water either because it does cause illness, uh, as you often hear from the local health department. So just like this illness that you can get from the, the water in the Illinois River, the symptoms of white supremacy, we can uh, get those ills as well. Some of you may be familiar with the city of Peoria. Uh, recently, uh, we were listed as the worst city for African Americans in the United States uh, in an article by Wall Street 24-7. The city of Peoria has been having conversations about this, and if you have attended uh, those meetings, as many of you have, you may have noticed that we're talking about the symptoms 
and how to fix the symptoms, but the conversation about the actual cause to the illness, white supremacy culture, is not being discussed. Uh, here in the church, we have had these conversations along with the uh, Interfaith Alliance and Peoria Proud. Uh, we recently had some conversations with the community to talk about the actual systemic racism that is causing a lot of the uh, issues that we're facing within the city of Peoria. Earlier, we, we grounded ourselves in the second s source, uh, the source, of the words and deeds of the prophetic people uh, that share with us, that challenge us uh, to face these systems of power and oppression. So what is the, the, this white supremacy that it, we are seeing currently in our denomination? I've been a part of the uh, NAACP here in Peoria, and I've noticed that what we are talking about in the NAACP is hiring practices within the city of Peoria. Uh, we are not hiring minorities. This is a symptom of the white supremacy within our local community. This same symptom we saw uh, within the Unitarian Universalist uh, Association. The upper level of our denomination uh, is currently all white and it is currently all uh, ministers. Uh, what happened recently, uh, and the reason that this conversation about white supremacy with the association started, is that there was an opportunity to hire uh, a new position, uh, which is the Southern Region Congregational Life Director, uh, which is in the upper level of Unitarian Universalist Association, and it came down to a white male reverend and a Latina uh, uh, religious professional of a uh, person of color, and the association went with the white male reverend, saying that he was the better fit, even though the, the other option uh, is currently a member of the UUA Board of Trustees uh, and is highly qualified and also lives in the region that she was applying for the position, whereas the other individual was not. Um, after uh, some conversations amongst uh, religious uh, professionals of color, uh, we, there was a letter that was penned to the uh, Unitarian Universalist Association Board of Trustees that called to question this constant practice uh, and the Board of Trustees took that uh, seriously, as well as our uh, president of the association. Uh, not so much at first. <laughs> uh, the letter that he originally wrote to uh, the UUA staff um, was uh, very defensive. Uh, he called the concerns uh, of the individuals about these hiring practices hysteria that was distracting us from the real goal of getting more people of color into our churches. Uh, that got a little bit more uh, backlash from religious professionals, both religious professionals of color and uh, other prof uh, religious professionals throughout the Unitarian Universalist world. So I think that did lead slightly to his decision um, and in his letter uh, he felt that he should have taken a moment to step back and listen more than speaking. Um, and it, it fed into his decision, I believe, to resign. Uh, the Board of Trustees has set uh, uh, some parameters for the new, uh, the three new uh, co-presidents that are interim before our election at the end of June. Um, so they are looking into the processes um, and how to make the Unitarian Universalist Association uh, meet their goals and to be a part of the, the solution and, and 
uh, taking on this white supremacy culture within our uh, denomination. As we had said uh, in the opening reading, I want to lift up some voices uh, of those who are not often heard. Aisha Hauser, uh, who is a religious professional within the Unitarian Universalist world, recently uh, shared a, a video on Facebook uh, where she was talking about uh, Jordan Edwards. I don't know if you're familiar with the story of Jordan Edwards. Uh, it was a young man who was recently shot uh, by law enforcement as he was leaving a house party that he believed was starting to become unsafe. Uh, he was a, a, a star student, and he just wanted to no longer be in this place. And as he was leaving, he was shot in the back by an officer. She shared that she has been getting messages in regards to this situation um, of people that are feared that taking on white supremacy within our denomination, that it's going to tear our community apart. And she asked us, how can we have radical love without radical truth? The question is, how do we have radical love without radical truth? If we are unable to look at the systems that we have built within our own denomination and look at them and reflect on them, then what, what, do we, what is holding our denomination together? If we are afraid that looking at ourselves is going to make us fall apart. Another story uh, from Dr. Uh, Takia Amin, uh, who is a, a member of the Black Lives of UU Organizing Collective. I just wanted to share something that she uh, recently wrote. Uh, she, she shared with us, uh, one reason I am a Unitarian Universalist is because it is a faith where I can bring all of the best of what I was taught growing up in my multi-faith family. And because as a religious grounded in principle and reflection, justice making and righteous action are essential to our faith, not uh, something uh, insular. This uh, reasoning deeply, deeply for me and connects, resounds deeply for me and connects uh, to my grandparents' social justice efforts as members of the Baptist and African Methodist Episcopal Zion congregation and to my parents' legacy as social conscious progressive Muslims. My deep sadness as a Unitarian Universalist is that while this faith community has always been a space that welcomes my varied religious heritage, my blackness has not always felt at home here. That is to say, I have never been able to take for, grant, take for granted that I would be welcome in UU spaces as a black woman. No matter how long I've been a member, what committees I've served on, or the number of times I've been a GA delegate, I've never been able to take for granted the sense of home and welcome and connection that, is, that I see my white UU siblings proudly proclaiming. During Reverend White's, uh, first uh, sermon with us as our new associate minister, she asked us a question. Are we willing to accept the treatment of the disadvantage or are we going to do something to change it? So that is the question that I am also going to leave with you. Will we continue to uh, let the system of white supremacy seen by so many uh, of our UU people of color continue or will we ourselves do something to change that system? Thank you. But just like many American institutions, 
Our denomination has much, has much to be proud of. And also, some things that we are not so proud of at this moment in history. Being this, in this low place in our denominational life is painful. And many of us are shocked to find controversy over overt racism in Unitarian Universalism. There's kind of a double-edged sword when we boast that we are a progressive faith. Because first of all, we have so much to live up to. And secondly, we are made vulnerable when we are not living up to who we say we are. For some of us, it must feel as if challenging words about racism are personal attacks, and as, and as if they have come out of the blue. But this dominance is built into our institutions, not just this institution of Unitarian Universalism, but it is built into our institutions. It hasn't come out of the blue, and it did not happen overnight. So let's look at our institution of Unitarian Universalism. But let's go back a few centuries. And before you begin to complete a thought like, what has that got to me do with me? I wasn't even there. Please be patient and take a brief look at our history with me. Unitarian Universalists were slaveholders and grew rich on the backs of other human beings that helped build this country. Do you think that the notion of superiority was not part of the society? Schools, businesses, and churches built into the policies and attitudes, into the actual brick and mortar. There's a fascinating paper online uh, called William Ellery Channing and Racism by Robert Michael Rule, who is now a professor at St. John Fisher College. In 1899, Dr. Channing delivered the sermon that defined modern Unitarianism. This most prominent proponent of Unitarianism, William Ellery Channing, was an on-again, off-again abolitionist. But according to the, to the article, he vacillated between contempt for the institution and genuine empathy for the slaveholders. He saw the slaves as human, but not of equal status with white people. Channing had great religious insight for his time, but his thoughts about the nature of the slaves and the freed Africans were quite common for the 19th century. Yes, quite common for the times. We have heard these words before, and we are expected to take that as some sort of salve about the wounds that are the wounds that are. Do you think that attitudes of superiority were not entwined in our society, into our church practices, built into the liturgy and whispered into the minds and hearts of children who later became leaders themselves? I could cite story after story 
from the 19th century of how the vitriol of racism and the notion of superiority in our Unitarian and Universalist ancestors contributed to heartbreaking decisions regarding our black brothers and sisters. What was built into our institutional DNA that allowed us to break promises, to deny students access to our schools of higher education, to withdraw financial support, to belittle and malign people of color. I don't want to burden you today with the details of all that that happened in the 19th century, but as our esteemed minister Michael Brown would say, you can read it in a book. Many of these incidents are documented in Reverend Dr. Mark Morrison Reed's books, particularly Black Pioneers in a White Denomination and Darkening the Doorway. So let's jump ahead to the 1960s, which began with positive efforts from our denomination regarding racism. In 1963, a resolution was passed at the Chicago General Assembly mandating non-discrimination. Good start. Dr. King sent a call for clergy to come to Selma, Alabama after Bloody Sunday, March 7, 1965. Reverend Morrison Reed notes that 400 UUs heard that call and went to Selma, and 40 of those were senior ministers. And many of you will recall that at that time, the minister of this church, Reverend Fred Lachane, wanted to go, but was not supported by our board. One of the things that happened Two of the terrible things that happened in Selma were that two UUs, Reverend James Reed and Mrs. Viola Liuzzo, were martyred by white segregationists in two different horrible incidents. African Americans were so impressed by that outpouring of Unitarian Universalist courage and support that they began joining UU churches. Unfortunately, it was not long before the honeymoon was over, and controversy based on racial animus began to occur. What happened over the next several years is complicated and filled with the initials of groups such as BAC, the Black Affairs Council, BAWA, BAWA, Black and White Action and Fullback, and there were emergency caucuses that were called from San Francisco to Boston to try to figure out how we could address the issues that were tearing our denomination apart. In UU history, that time between 1968 and 1970 has become known to us as the Black Empowerment Controversy. At general assemblies during these years, as people became more and more divided, and this is not delicate and it's difficult, and I will just warn you right now that this is a behavior that we think that Unitarian Universalists would never engage in. This behavior that was witnessed by many 
people of color that was not only witnessed by them, but was caused by them. At general assemblies during these years, as people became more and more divided, there was open arguing and shouting at the, at the large sessions. There was commandeering of microphones and attempts to commandeer the agenda. There was pushing and shoving and spitting on other people. People left the assemblies to caucus and you could hear the N-word, you N-lover. Why do you want to tear our denomination apart? So, what messages had been cooked into our institutional stew of survival? The UUA committed millions of dollars to help address the racism crisis, but unbeknown to the group gathered there, that money had already been spent. So the vision is that the UUA did not keep its word to go out and to plan programs that could help relieve this racial crisis. And to this day, the memory is, the institutional memory is that the UUA did not keep its word and African-Americans left the denomination in droves, never to return. Not just because programs could not be funded, but because they were not treated as valued, equal citizens in the faith that has for its first principle, we, the member congregations of the Unitarian Universalist Association, covenant to affirm and promote the inherent worth and dignity of every person. Now almost 50 years have passed and nothing has been done to resolve the hurt and disappointment from the 60s. 50 years later, we are embroiled in another controversy that we could ignore as we ignored what happened in the 60s, except that this is our opportunity to be builders of a new foundation, to be standard bearers for freedom and justice, to infuse Unitarian Universalism with the strength to survive. Here I am, the white dude. What do I have to say? One of the things that seems true about race relations to me is that very well-meaning people sometimes make serious mistakes. Even those who want to do good and are dedicated to doing good can do harm without realizing that that's what's happening. The people I know at our UUA headquarters who have resigned recently are good people. They really are good people. They're as good as any of us. And yet, 
they made some mistakes, made some errors in judgment. I want to say today that I thank them for their service, and I am pained at their leaving. What I think happens to well-meaning people who often want to do good is that we don't notice what's going on around us. We don't see it. We actually physically don't see it. Those of us who are what uh, Nisi Coates called the people who think they are white, many of us live in a bubble. We live in the bubble of our world. And even though we are compassionate and good-hearted, we often don't see past that bubble. And we don't really even know how to do that. And often don't even realize that we need to. I want to tell you a story about an error that I made. It's just my story. It's not, some of you know about this story, but I'm not trying to tell your story. I'm just going to tell you my story about this event. About five years ago, our church and Interfaith Alliance got involved in a program in the city of Peoria called Don't Shoot. Don't Shoot is a program that focuses basically on locking up the people who are most likely to commit violent crimes, identifying who those people are, then the way it works is that they get called in. They're mostly gang members, really, is who they are. And they get told that they must change their ways, and they're offered various kinds of social agency support to change, leave the gangs. And another interesting feature of Don't Shoot is that the city leaders tell the people that they love them. That's part of the program. So, they are also warned that if they get involved in violence, then the authorities are going to throw the book at them. So it's both a stick and a carrot. And this program has had some success in other cities, some measure of success. And it sounded like a good idea to me. And I want to tell you, I'm just telling you my story not anyone else's. It sounded like a good idea to me, and I would do anything I could that would be honorable to try to keep people from being killed. I really would. If I could find anything I could do that's honorable to keep people from being killed, I would try to do that. So I became involved in that, and, and we many of us did. And undoubtedly, uh, that program may have done some good. I would never doubt that that can be part of the story. What didn't occur to me was to ask my African-American colleagues what they thought of this program. It did not occur to me to do that. 
It even happened that an African-American colleague who I respect made a comment to me one day about that program that made it clear that from his point of view, that was not the way to go. So I did not seek out any counsel from my African-American friends, and even when it was offered, I didn't pay attention to it. I was in my bubble. I was in my bubble as a thoughtful, caring, progressive, white, liberal minister who probably understood things very well. So I understand that I have a certain kind of programming that is not always working as it should. And I don't even see it most of the time. I don't even see that it's happening. It takes something to jar me a little bit so that I see my own programming in action. So those of us who belong to that group that Tanisi Coates says the people who believe that they're white, we have that programming. How could it be otherwise? I was brought up that way. One of my uncles used the N-word all the time. I did something when I was a kid of a racist nature that I was taught to do. And I can't even tell you that story. I was taught that. And we're all part of that. So I know that I misperceive reality. And I suspect that we're those of us who identify with the majority privileged white culture, we're all in that. Now, the good news is we can get out of that. That's the good news. That we don't have to live with that forever. We may never totally transform our entire brain wiring, but to great links, we can get out of that. And we can start to see the world more like it is. I will tell you, I will never, ever support a program that purports to help minorities or anything. I will never do that again without calling my black minister friends. I will never do that. I blew it. They might have even said, go ahead. I don't know what they would have said because I didn't ask them. So that's part of my corrective. So we can grow in this. We can grow in this. This is possible to do. It's not like some things that you just can't figure out any way to ever get out. We can do this. There are ways to help us heal from some of the programming that's in the water, as Marcus puts it. 
We've done some of that work here in this church. We've done it through adult religious education, and we did it recently through the program called Don't. Uh, let's talk. So we are making those steps. I'm very glad we're doing that. But we're going to have to go farther and deeper. We're going to have to unlearn this false picture of reality that to some extent we are all trapped in. We, Linda and I, and the people in our adult education program are committed to putting before this congregation programs of learning so that we can become people who are consciously on that path. Another thing Coates says in his book, which is a wonderful book, Between the World and Me, he says, we cannot wait for the white population to have a growth in consciousness. That's what he said, we can't wait, and I, that's obviously true. But what that says to us is that's what we need to do. We need to have a growth in consciousness so that we start to perceive the world, not just from our bubble, but from these multiple perspectives. So we are going to present those kinds of workshops and growth experiences to you over the next year or so, or however long that takes. There's a wonderful one we're looking at right now called Beloved Conversations that we're going to hopefully bring into this church in the fall, which is a program for raising our consciousness. We do live in a racist society. We do. Could list off the reasons why that's true, but you don't even need me to do that. We have a ruling administration that openly consorts with blatant white supremacists, not even the subtle kind, the blatant. So we have to be in contrast to that. We just, there's no other place we can be that's honorable. Every other place lacks integrity. So, this is going to be a spiritual growth path for us. We're going to grow in our spirit. We're going to grow in our perception. We're going to grow in our ability to love across all these boundaries. I, the, the great news is I know we can do this because we're already on that path. We're already doing it, but we've got a ways to go. I have a ways to go, because I see what a blunder I could be capable of. So, I hope you will join with me on that. I hope you'll join with Reverend Linda and Marcus and our adult RE leaders and everyone of goodwill because the world desperately needs this kind of growth. Our country is a wounded place. 
So I call upon us all to take this path. We're not going down the path of guilt. Reverend Mark Morrison-Reed was here three years ago and he said, white people, do not get caught up in guilt. We just want to be clear in our vision. We want to see what's going on. And really break out of that bubble. And then we're going to fulfill our mission to love inclusively and to heal our world. Let us go down that path. That's the best path. There isn't any better path anywhere. Let's do that together.